Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the amazing and talented THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. What's up, Dan? I, I am feel like I have to begin by offering my condolences and really pretty much just pushing the microphone in your direction and saying, so any thoughts on uh, the the Dodgers, Leslie? I have a lot of them. I'm going to make it quick. Dave <laughs> Roberts should be fired. Get rid of him. Three years. Come on. We got eliminated by a wild card team. Come on. Two World Series losses. Make it stop. Also, hi, Joe Madden's available. Um, yeah, but in fun Dodger news, I interviewed Russ Stripling this week about his podcast and, and told him about TV's top five. And he's super fun. And his podcast, The Big Swing, is equally great if you're a Dodger fan. I particularly love the Clayton Kershaw interview. That he did, I, I am sorry. And now suddenly all of our excitement about the postseason, which was overwhelming, is gone. And unfortunately, that means we only have to concentrate on TV. What's in the headlines this week, Leslie? I'm just not okay. I'm just going to say I'm not ready yet. It's just I'm very sad. And it just I don't know. It feels like my heart got ripped out and, and thrown on the floor. And then Joe Kelly decided to take a, a large dump right on top of it. So oh. I'm just very disappointed. And I know a lot of other Dodger fans are. And <sighs> all right. This is me hitting the reset button. Okay, here we go. Here we go. And lots of TV news going on this week. Alfonso Cuaron has signed a TV overall deal with Apple. Alfonso Cuaron, the director and executive producer of NBC's uh, mid-season drama Believe from several years ago that no one remembers existed? Yes, and from Netflix's Roma, which everyone remembers existed. Because what did they say? Like 40 million people watched one second of 30 <laughs> of, I don't know. Netflix doesn't release ratings. Which is not actually a topic this week. Anyway, following last... Last week's segment on TNT and TBS and the Snowpiercer, what the heck is Snowpiercer doing back on TNT most recently? Mystery. Uh, Search Party, a show I really enjoy and that people should check out, has, as we expected, honestly, moved to HBO Max for its third season, which is already in the can. And it was also renewed for a fourth season, which is not yet in the can. So that's exciting. We are still trying to get somebody from the Turner Cable family to come talk to us and answer our very simple question, huh? What? Huh? <laughs> See, we're even, we are even willing to give out our questions in advance for this interview. Yes. In broadcast news, the CW has extended All-American's second season by three additional episodes after the show from Greg Berlanti returned with a Netflix Halo and series high rating. And in other Greg Berlanti news, Fox's Prodigal Son, which he also produces, has the distinction of being the first of this fall's new shows to score a full season back nine order. In casting news, Michael Huseman, who some people will know from Game of Thrones, but I will insist on calling Treme Star, has joined HBO Max's The Flight Attendant, starring Kaylee Cuoco. Jeff Daniels will star as James Comey, but not be nearly tall enough. <laughs> and Brendan Gleeson will play Donald Trump, which... Could be interesting. In CBS TV Studios adaptation of a higher loyalty uh, miniseries about basically whatever the heck happened with James Comey and Donald Trump. 
could yeah. be interesting. Uh, it has not been announced yet what network that it's going to be on. Um, although I'm hearing that it is likely to air across multiple of the CBS linear and digital platforms. Including Pop? Yeah, I don't think it's going to be on Pop, Dan. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> Wrapping up headlines, Nick Jonas has joined The Voice for its upcoming spring season, replacing Gwen Stefani, who, of course, replaced Adam Levine. Well, way to go, NBC. You definitely landed a top four Jonas. <laughs> With all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's five topics. Number one. Leading off this week, Ronan Farrow's upcoming book, Catch and Kill, is the talk of the town. The Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, who spoke to The Hollywood Reporter for this week's cover story, asserts that NBC News tried to kill his report on Harvey Weinstein's alleged history of sexual assault because it had its own alleged history of misconduct claims against its own executives and stars. Among the latter category, Farrow's book also details for the first time a rape allegation against former Today host Matt Lauer who was fired two years ago amid claims of inappropriate sexual behavior at work. Lauer penned an open letter this week in which he denied the graphic new allegations. NBC News has also denied the assertions in Farrow's book. Here to break it all down is Hollywood Reporter Editorial Director Matt Bellany. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you, guys. So I guess my first question after reading the cover story is, you know, when in NCAA sports, when they do investigations, there's the charge of lack of institutional control that always comes up when a sports program is just totally out of control from top to bottom. Is the big takeaway from this cover story that there's just a lack of institutional control at NBC? Because that's what I got from it is, oh, my God, how is all this happening? Or take the flip side, is there so much institutional control that the actual product was prevented from reaching the public. I mean, it depends who you believe here because the NBC version of events is very different from the Ronan Farrow version of events. And, you know, just taking the allegations in the Farrow book at face value, this was a concerted effort from management to prevent this story from reaching the public. And the moment Harvey Weinstein got involved and started leveraging all of his contacts and the dirt that he had on Matt Lauer and you know Hillary Clinton's contacts and his you know VOD and and home video deal that he was negotiating with Universal the second that started happening there was no way that NBC was going to run this story and it was just a matter of how they pushed it out the door that's the Ronin version of, of events. The NBC version is very different, that they are a legitimate news operation. He walked in the door with what they called a half-baked story, that he did not have any accusers on the record. In fact, they had received a cease and desist letter from Rose McGowan's lawyer because she did an interview with him and then recanted it because she was so freaked out. And they just threw up their hands and said, I'm sorry, you don't have it. Take it elsewhere if you want. The problem is, is that The New Yorker ultimately did the story and did it so well that it launched this worldwide Me Too movement with The New York Times reporting, and it just makes them look horrible. One appeal of surprise and all of that. But even amidst all of this, there was still all the Matt Lauer stuff that was happening that you would think somebody had to know something about, no? You would think, <laughs> but NBC says that even though, you know, now in the Ronin book, there are seven different accusers who say that Matt Lauer did bad things with them. And a lot of those women made complaints to senior executives there. NBC maintains that they first learned about Matt's behavior the day before they fired him. 
So something doesn't jibe there. And either these women did not do what they say they did, or it never reached management, or they were covering for their biggest star. And this book goes into some graphic detail with, with allegations against Matt Lauer. How has he responded? The, the Lauer letter that he put out on Wednesday of this week was very detailed. I mean, he came out swinging and he knew this was coming. The Lauer people have been waiting for these allegations in this book for a long time. And the lengthy letter he put out went into detail, graphic detail and play by play detail of what happened between him and this accuser. And, you know, and that's just one of the seven accusers. Well, there are a couple on the record in the book, but there are others that Farrow claims were anonymous and had submitted claims against NBC. So the, of the people in the book that are on the record, this is the most graphic and explosive allegation. She's claiming rape and assault. And the response from Lauer went into detail about just how consensual this encounter was uh, in his recollection and how his relationship with this woman went on for months after the encounter that she describes in uh, Japan during the Olympics. Which we all know clearly has nothing really to do with whether or not it was rape in this instance. True, yes. But the actual, the actual description of that encounter in Japan is very detailed. And I, he does that, in my opinion, because it comes across as more credible the more detailed he gets. Now, whether it's a lie, I have no idea, whether it's half-truth, whatever you believe, this is a, a very detailed version of events. Well, what is your guess as to what sort of impact this might have? Because I read our story, That's this is without having read the book, and all I kept thinking is, how do these people have their jobs still today, much less you know, six months ago, do you expect that people are going to lose jobs over this or is it just going to be swept under the rug more? I actually don't think they will be fired. And, and the, the couple of reasons for that. First, there is a lot of smoking-ish guns in this book, things that make NBC look horrible, emails that are cringeworthy when you read them in hindsight. But there isn't a smoking gun that says, Hi, I'm Andy Lack, the president of NBC News, and I'm going to kill this story because Harvey Weinstein says he'll release dirt on Matt Lauer. There is not that email. There's a lot of anonymous sources that says this is, was happening in the background, but there isn't that smoking gun that is going to cause NBC to have to act. And the second reason is I just think they don't want to give Ronan Farrow the satisfaction of having brought down their news division. They absolutely hate him. They believe he's on a crusade to take them down because they wouldn't run his story. And I just think that, the, you know, it would be such a victory for him to have this happen. I think what will more likely happen is that Andy Lack, who is now in his early 70s, will likely not renew his contract whenever that is up next, and he will retire, and it will be a normal course of business uh, in their statement, whatever they put out. And it will still have to be acknowledged in any stories subsequently written about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the cloud I mean, and, under which. And this is not the only thing that Andy Lack is controversial over. I mean, he he's the one that paid all that money to Megyn Kelly and put her in a very ill-fitting morning talk show. He also rehired Brian Williams after that scandal where he was caught making up details of these trips that he had taken. So, you know, he's not without controversy, but he's also a seasoned news executive who's been working for decades. And the Comcast people who own NBC seem to have confidence in him. Yeah. And what about in the larger sense? You know, Matt Lauer has been pretty quiet for the last couple of years. 
what does this do for any attempts that if he was even considering coming back? I mean, is he completely uh, over at this point? I personally don't think Matt Lauer can come back. I mean, he, you know, he so blew up his image and his credibility in the news space. And this is someone who was the king of morning television, which has a largely female viewer base. He's making like something like $25 million a year or something like that. Yeah. Right and, and I just don't, I don't see him. Even if there is, let's say he sues Ronan Farrow and wins, and this, you know, this accuser was found to have fabricated stuff. I still don't think that he's able to come back in that role. Maybe there's some other role that I am not thinking of, but as the host of a morning television show, that's going to be a really tough one. Yeah, he's a. I mean, he's a personality-based journalist, and so much of whatever it was that people liked about him was the ability to like him and to like watching him relate to other people. I don't think I could watch him relate to another human at this point and not be like, dude, you're horrible. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, a lot of people said that about Billy Bush, and he came back, but the Billy Bush allegations are much different. They're very different. Very, very different. And... You know, he he waited his time and he, you know, and he was he's also not considered a serious journalist. He's more of a celebrity journalist. And it's a different situation. And I can also say that anytime I was watching a entertainment show that Billy Bush magically popped up on, I would change the channel at this right. point. But, also, he does, so. but he does have an audience and people like him. And clearly the extra people thought he was valuable enough to bring back. And it seems to be working. Right. There hasn't been much blowback on him. Yeah. Well, Catch and Kill is out October 15th. Our guest this week has been THR Editorial Director Matt Bellany. Matt, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for joining us, Matt. No problem. Number two. Up second, let's talk about Peacock, Dan. Do we have to? Sure. There's a big change atop of NBC Universal's forthcoming streaming service. Bonnie Hammer, the former cable network's chief who was promoted in January to head the streamer, is no longer running the streamer six months before it launches. She instead will have the task of merging NBCU's two different studios, Universal Television, which is primarily focused on broadcast, and Universal Content Productions, which is focused on cable and streaming. In her place, Comcast tech guru Matt Strauss will take over as chairman of the ad-supported platform, which is set to launch in April. Yeah, there's there's a lot going on there, too. Plus, George Cheeks, who used to oversee UCP and was promoted alongside Paul Telegdi last year to run NBC Entertainment, replacing Greenblatt. Cheeks is going with Bonnie, and he's going to be her number two at the mega studio, which leaves Paul Telegdi now as the lone NBC Entertainment president. <sighs> so here's the thing. The best way to get perspective on any of these executive shifts and what anybody's network brand is doing is through the Television Critics Association press tour. It's a great opportunity <laughs> for executives to come and make their speech to a room of TV reporters about what their network's ethos is and who their executives are. And it's a good way to see who's quick on their feet and has their head on the ball and all of that stuff. Well, NBC and NBC Uni stopped doing executive sessions at press tour a while ago. And as a result, I don't have a clue who George Cheeks is or was and what his purpose was he's at been anything. A, he's been a big rising star within that portfolio. He's bounced around a lot and, and moved up a lot in the last two years. He's a savvy business guy behind the scenes. He's not a creative. Bonnie is more of a creative person. 
Um, but Bonnie, who I believe last did a press tour executive session like five or six years ago and was largely smug and uninteresting, but she might have just been introducing panels. I don't know. Really and truly, I have no clue what's happening at NBC Universal. So let's start with the questions. What does this all mean for Peacock starting there? So basically what this means is that Bonnie has done her job. She has launched this, you know, has launched what will be their creative uh, point of view that she announced we there's still a lot more to, to come sports and news programming and how that will will fit into the ad supported platform but she has outlined what their creative strategy is going to be she's installed bill mcgoldrick who's overseeing all of the creative across usa sci-fi and peacock and kind of directing traffic on the scripted front um and basically what bringing in matt strauss is going to be is it's a message of saying we want the user experience to be good so now they've got a tech guy at the helm with mcgoldrick still there and reporting to a variation of other people within the company and now they're focused on building the infrastructure and, and how that platform is going to work. Because as we know from you know using different platforms, Netflix and Hulu and, and Amazon and all these other upcoming services, like we've seen how Disney Plus is going to work. So this is basically NBCU saying our priority right now is to make sure the user has a good experience. Because if we have good stuff, if we've got great library content, it doesn't mean anything if the user experience isn't going to be a good one. Okay. And so Bonnie Hammer, who has in the past five years, I think she's had at least five different job titles. She's basically, it's been a nonstop rise, job title to job title to job title to job title. Um, Among the more powerful people in Hollywood. No question. And I feel like a lot of people don't know who she is. um, And, you know, they should. And so that's because what, if you watch a show, if you watch a show on USA, if you watch something on on Bravo or E or Sci-Fi, she formerly oversaw all of those cable brands. She was promoted this past January to oversee the streamer, meaning giving that portfolio to someone else because the streamer was their first priority. That is everyone's top priority is to get into the streaming space because we see what's happening. Linear ratings on broadcast and cable are are declining week after week after week and streaming interest everyone's putting their money and resources and top talent there so that's why she was promoted to peacock the move is a bit of a head scratcher because it shows well these studios are going to be the main content supplier for peacock because as we've mentioned on this podcast everyone is buying from in-house basically you want to own it because you want to monetize it you don't want to have to be paying a licensing fee to someone you know for programming that you don't own what this signals is that she's going to create one big mega studio that will service Peacock and all of the broadcast network and and all of the cable brands. And McGoldrick will continue to oversee the creative and figure out what from where goes where. I mean, I'm rambling at this point, but yeah, I mean, it's still a big job for Bonnie. It's just it's also Comcast and NBCU sending a larger message that the streamer is important. We, she's done her job there. And now they're moving on and they want her to do the same and create this mega studio that can be a content pipeline for all of these various outlets. And are there any basic kind of consumer takeaways for our more casual listeners? Basically, what's the most dumbing down you can do for listeners who didn't think they cared about this section but kept listening to it anyway? What should they take away from this? Um, that they're really focused on building an infrastructure for the ad-supported platform that people will be able to enjoy. And the guy that they installed there has great experience doing that for that company already. So that shows that they want this to be an enjoyable experience and a platform that's easy to use. So they don't want it to be, you know, like on Amazon. And I use that site all the time to order stuff. and, And I never really, I rarely, I should say, see 
originals. I've never watched an original on, on Amazon's platform. It's always been on a screener or a press site or screeners.com or whatever the, you know, the, the press links are. So yeah, that I think is, is the larger takeaway. Excellent. All right, well, let's move on. Up third, break out your Breaking Bad Halloween costumes because Vince Gilligan's feature film follow-up is out. Number three. El Camino debuts this weekend in select theaters nationwide and, of course, on Netflix, the streaming platform that helped turn the AMC drama into a monster hit. Dan, you have seen El Camino. What should our dear listeners do to prepare before they view? I've definitely seen a lot of people on Twitter talking about full series rewatches and all of that. And, you know, I I was going to say, God bless anybody who has 60 hours thereabouts in their lives to rewatch. What was a great show? Like, don't get me wrong. Obviously, Breaking Bad, great show. Time, really, people should be watching Rami or something. Anyway. (laughs) See what you did there, Dan. I I still haven't watched. I am well aware. It's on my list. I see. And unfortunately, you have some free time in the next few weeks. God damn it. In the time that normally could be dedicated to one Major League Baseball game, you could watch six episodes of Rami, which I know does not help you feel better. I apologize. Stop crying, Leslie. Anyway, so. My head is in my hands right now. It is true. So what should the listeners actually necessarily rewatch? So for me personally, I rewatched the home stretch of the final season. So basically Ozymandias, Granite State, and Felina, the series finale. And then I rewatched the pilot, which I've seen the pilot a half dozen times. I have seen Ozymandias three or four times. I hadn't actually watched the finale and Granite State since they aired. Um, I don't know that they're necessary. The first and most important thing that listeners need to keep in mind is that this is a Jesse Pinkman story. So... There is some advantage to watching early episodes that focus on the young man that Jesse Pinkman was when we started, and then to be able to compare it to the very, very, very traumatized, slightly older man Jesse Pinkman was in the finale, having gone through an extensive amount of torture at the hands of neo-Nazis, etc., etc. So... I would tell people that it's definitely important to watch the last episode or two just to refresh your mind, but it is preceded by a fairly elaborate previously on Breaking Bad segment, and a lot of the things that you might not remember are spelled out within the movie. So I don't know that it's necessary. I think it it would be helpful for nostalgic purposes Definitely to watch the last few episodes. Osmandius remains one of the great television episodes ever. And the pilot remains a remarkable pilot. So there's no harm in rewatching those things. Watch a couple other Jesse Pinkman centric episodes, but you should be fine. I would say 60 hours of rewatching Breaking Bad while obviously fun. And if you have the time to do it, great and good on you. Not necessary. Yeah. And in a larger sense, from a business perspective, our colleague Mia Galupo detailed in a recent story for the website that... You know, El Camino is the latest TV show becoming a movie, of course, following Downton Abbey, which overperformed at the box office and skewed a little bit older, which I think surprised a lot of people. You know, and the next show getting the feature film treatment, of course, is The Walking Dead, which will work with Universal and get a big release there. Obviously, we don't know a release date or just how big of a release and how many theaters, but that'll feature the and you know the Andrew Lincoln Rick Grimes story. It's fair to suspect that Denai Guerrero will be in that. I mean, they do need a movie star anyway, and they have one and a reason for her to wrap up that story. And you know, we should stay tuned for our fourth 
segment this week, our showrunner spotlight, as we'll have Scott Gimple talking all about the world of The Walking Dead, including the feature. Which will be very exciting. Uh, yeah, this is definitely a thing that's happening. We'll see if that gets to theaters before the Sopranos prequel movie from David Chase. So these are things that are actually getting theatrical releases. Then, of course, you had the Emmy-nominated Deadwood movie, which finally happened back right. in May. And but not released in theaters. Not released clarify. in theaters. So th there are different ways of doing all of these things and in kind of revisiting these worlds, which can also, if you wanted to, tie in with the four-hour, not really movie, but still comeback of Gilmore Girls a couple of years, etc. I think that a thing to differentiate a number of these from a number of the other ones is whether it's necessary to have these with Deadwood it was a show that ended unceremoniously and not in any way on its own terms. So it was important for David Milch to be able to close the series out in his own way. Uh, Gilmore Girls ended with a different showrunner taking it over and not being able to have those vaunted last four words, which many of us have already pretty much forgotten. I, I think I remember them, but... I blocked it out. I, I remember them, and they were fine, whatever. So I think, I think that maybe what's interesting about El Camino is that it's following up on a finale that... I think most people think was a pretty solid finale. I, I've always felt like it was a little on the overly wrapped up side. Uh, and so maybe reopening those quote unquote wounds either is or isn't a good idea. Downton Abbey, for example, did not really need a movie. Just people were happy to go back to it. The Sopranos has some fans who are pissed off by how unresolved the finale is and those... some i think it still remains one of the most wildly discussed and debated finales yeah no? some so it's divisive whatever i continue to think that sometimes closure is overrated and that you can provide your own closure in your heart and be a grown-up uh that would be my opinion on the subject i think the sopranos finale is brilliant i think that the breaking bad finale is a very very good finale and whether you needed to go back to the world, at least the Sopranos movie is going back before. So maybe makes it a better idea. But yeah, that basically everyone's trying to find different ways to make money in yeah. the marketplace. And, you're, and, you know, look, the lines between film and television is blurring anyway. You've got so many movie stars doing TV shows and some of these are, you know, three episode limited series. I mean, everyone talks about these as doing a 10 hour film, on, you know, on a lot of these premium packages. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting trend to keep an eye on that. That's for sure. And of course, Dan, you'll have uh, more of your critical thoughts on El Camino in our Critics Corner segment coming up. Exactly. Which takes us to our fourth segment. It's time for another showrunner spotlight. Number four. Joining us this week is showrunner turned chief creative officer of all things The Walking Dead for AMC, Mr. Scott Gimple. Since being promoted in January 2018, Gimple has expanded the world of the zombie drama to a third scripted show due next year, as well as a slate of three feature films starring former Walking Dead leading man Andrew Lincoln. The flagship series returned October 6th for its landmark 10th season and was recently renewed for an 11th season with former star Lauren Cohan also returning. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. In your mind, what's an ideal schedule for The Flagship Walking Dead, Fear the Walking Dead, and the third show? Basically, do you, are you doing new episodes 39 weeks a year of original programming for AMC? And at a certain point, once there are that many shows, does splitting seasons in half make sense? How does that work when you're like looking at you know interconnecting all of these different shows? Oh my God, that is a great question. <laughs> just because that, that has everything to do with, um, with literally the way that we tell stories. The splitting of the shows 
works, I think, narratively for the shows. That, that we won't be actually with the third show. We might we might not be splitting that one. That might be straight through. I, I hate to be definitive because you know things in television are fluid day to day. With a sixteen episode season, though, two halves of eight make for good arcs. I will say that on Fear the Walking Dead, the way that the stories are going to be told next year are going to be very different than the other two shows. It's just going to have almost an entirely different format. So how would you describe what the different format is going to be for the the third series? I think where we've seen just such wonderful stories on that show have been like deeply focused on character and really shining a light on you know, single or a couple characters an episode with beginnings, middle and middles and ends. And that's what we're looking towards on that show. And how will the third show be different? With that show, with the third show, it's less about format. It is much more about the perspective that we have. It's about the two sisters at the lead of the show. It's about their age and their friend's age who are, who are going along with them. The show itself has, in some ways, a different mythology set in the world. And it, it isn't, it's still set in the same world, but the things that they're tied up in are very different than the things that are tied, that the other shows have featured. And I, the lives that we've seen these other characters lead, and I, I don't mean that they start, that they simply start in a settled place, but the system that they're under and the system that they're tied into or, or trying to get out of is just so different than anything we've seen. And it gives the show, between its very young perspective, a very different feel. The things that they're tied up in, we have not seen on the other shows. In your office, do you have like cork boards with all of the individual storylines and how they connect and making sure that the pieces overlap properly or don't overlap, et cetera? You know, I don't have that stuff up. I have a little of that stuff up and I'm looking, I just turned. Um, I had to see it's all been covered up for today because uh, some people are coming to the office. Um, there's a little of that, but that actually is more in documents. That's like long typed out documents that look like. But you do still have it arced out somewhere. Oh, very much so. You have to. And that's why having it up on a corkboard doesn't really work. You have to have it like in documents and written out. And it looks a little crazy that way. But. Yeah, having it up on the wall is bad business because it does change a lot. And the points of connection, you need a lot of flexibility. One big part of it with the showrunners that I work with, it's trying not to be prescriptive. It's trying to give them the arena of correction, uh, of connection rather, and then let them have their story within it. It isn't like this exact thing needs to happen then. Occasionally it does just because of, you know, very intricate time sort of uh, things. But, but in general, there's certain things we want to achieve, but we also don't want to hem in our showrunners. It's a little bit of a dance. I really think it's important that the showrunners run the show and that it's a, a collaborative effort rather than sort of a prescriptive effort. It's been nearly a year now since Andrew Lincoln departed the flagship series, which entered uncharted territory, obviously straying very, very far off from where the comics are. How would you have reacted if I told you at that time that The Walking Dead would air theatrically as a feature film 
from a major distributor and a major studio in Universal. I mean, that's pretty huge. I just think it makes sense. We want to do a theatrical expression of The Walking Dead that is, you know, something that feels like a movie because we've been making little movies for years and years and years, and we know that we have great stories to tell on the screen. And Rick slash Andy give us that opportunity to start out of the gate in a, in a really amazing way. When we last spoke, Denai Guerrera had not been confirmed as leaving the flagship show in season 10. Look, she's a movie star after Black Panther. She has to participate in these. I mean, she's as big of a draw, if not more so, than Andrew Lincoln at this point. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you just laid it out. (laughs) So I, I would say even if she happened not to be a movie star, that would be the case. But I remember sitting in Black Panther at the premiere and watching her as a Koye. And just sort of sinking into my chair and being like, oh, my God, Denai is a movie star. I think she blew away everybody on the screen. I mean, she's always blown us away, but, you know, she was our little secret with 17 million people. Now the secret's out. What is the plan when it comes to giving the Rick movies cinematic value? You're actually making people pay to see these. So what are you going to do to make it an event in terms of production value or narratively? I mean, that, that's another great question, and, and in doing it, that's sort of the prime directive, not, not to get into Star Trek. You have to make it worth it for them to go, so you have to give them a complete entertainment that uses that giant screen, but also hits them in the heart so that there is this, you know, you walk out of that theater with a smile on your face, maybe your heart racing a little bit. It's a different thing, and I think, I think in some ways it's about the completeness of the story, fulfilling the character of Rick Grimes, and taking people on a bit of a thrill ride to boot. It, it is a different format. You know, movies are not television, and there's been a lot of talk of TV shows being like one long movie. There's a real art to making that 90-minute, that 120-minute entertainment. You know, the lights go out and you get taken to another place, and the lights come up and you forgot that you were, you were away. It's a different kind of challenge, and uh, I'm loving tackling it. You know, with a Walking Dead movie, this has to appeal to a big and broad audience, many of whom may not have, have even seen the flagship shows or any of the shows, for that matter. Will these movies appeal to that large audience and people who have never seen it before? I mean, what you, what you just said, this is for everyone. We have to honor the fans of the show, absolutely. But I don't think that's mutually exclusive to letting other people in. And if this is the very first Walking Dead thing they've ever seen, they'll enjoy it. They'll, They'll be like, whoa, that was a crazy zombie movie. Is there other Walking Dead stuff? I think I've heard that before. I mean, that's that's that is the idea. But I I think I think Romero did that. I I think we've set up things for an amazing story that people will get a certain satisfaction from having had the relationship a long time to the story. But I I think of Logan a lot. You know, Logan is a movie that, you know, if you grew up on X-Men comics and the cartoons and the wonderful canned pastas, when you saw Logan, you got this extra thing out of it. But if you've never seen or read an X-Men thing in your life and you just stumbled onto Logan, I think that movie stands on its own. We need this movie to stand on its own. And and I would be unbelievably grateful if we create something 
that maybe even young people stumble onto who have never watched an episode of The Walking Dead. And then they have this giant library that they can go home and consume and hopefully have a great time with. But yeah, this is a movie that's going to be for everybody. Well, speaking of the of the series, the the mothership, how are you feeling about the fact that these departures have the past couple of years kind of dominated the conversation? You know, you have a show with 15 to 20 regular cast members and characters and two seasons ago became this is all about Rick leaving. And this season has become to some degree. This is all about Michonne's departure from the show. How, how has that impacted the storytelling and your perspective on it? Well, I, I don't think the the conversation has necessarily impacted the storytelling, partially because we're so we're working so far ahead of the conversation, and also, I don't know, you know, you can't monitor that stuff while you're trying to tell a story. But just on the flip side of it, just being such a big part of the conversation, you know, obviously this stuff was never like meant to be promotional, but we're just thrilled that. People are still talking about it so much. There's 600 million television shows. The fact that people are so invested in our characters and our actors, and it's, you know, it's big, that was big news about Deny. We're very grateful. Deny was very grateful. Uh, the reaction to it touched her. I hate speaking for her, though. So. <laughs> it's a remarkable thing to be a part of people's lives and for them. To, to still have them be, to still have us be such a big part of their life, so deep into this story. We're, we're just thrilled that there is a conversation. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned, obviously, you know, you are so deep into this story. The flagship is entering its milestone 10th season. By the end of it, you'll have, you're nearing the 150 episode milestone. How much longer do you see the flagship show running? You know, Robert pitched this originally as the zombie movie that never ends. And that always, you know, especially as a, you know, when I was a reader, before I knew Robert, before I was on this show, that was thrilling. That was like, it was such an incredible promise to have, you know, like, oh, I'm always going to have this thing. Yeah. And then, of course, the comic um, book just recently ended, which was a big surprise to many in the industry, including, I think, you know, maybe yourself. This may have been a secret, right? It, w it was absolutely a surprise. I knew aspects of it and I knew that Robert was looking at an end game, but he wasn't telling me the timeline. And in fact, even aspects of that story in the final issue, I knew a lot of aspects of that story, but I didn't know that it was the end. And what's interesting is since Robert had told me that, my mind had been just churning with ideas about all that stuff he put in that last issue. That last issue, and I told him, I'm like, that, that reads like a pilot, dude. It doesn't read like a finale. If you take away the, the Rick Grimes aspect and the story between Carl and his kid, in many ways, it's, it feels like a pilot to me. And I want to see those stories. I, I've said that I look at Walking Dead as like the biggest piece of fan fiction ever made. I came to the show as somebody who read the comic and who watched the first season at home. And I'm thrilled to have been able to tell stories you know, bringing it to life, but it, in some ways it always felt like fan fiction, you know, really expensive and there's a lot of effort in it, but it's fan fiction. You look at that last issue and I'm like, I can't wait to tell those stories. So 
I'm just saying it could go on and on and on because I think the creativity is there. The, the seeds are there. I'm very excited. Like, can there still be zombie movies? And I think any of us would say yes. Can we take the creativity and the tone that Robert has and continue on with it? I believe, I believe so, yeah. So the new season of Walking Dead, it, it has a primarily new location. It has some new characters. It's not quite a reboot, but there are sort of rebooty elements about it. Is there a pitch that you would want to make for anybody who has at any point fallen off the Walking Dead wagon to jump back on this season? You know, the start of the season is, I feel like, it's weird. It is like this continuing story from, you know, we ended with, you know, an inconclusive sort of conclusion in as much as like things were not totally settled. And yet what Angela and the writers have done have created these characters starting in a, in a pretty settled place, sort of accepting their reality. And that makes a great start of the story for everyone. They've been living their lives and they've accepted what their lives are. And to make that the beginning for anybody, I'm saying like the beginning for anybody to tune in, I, I, think, I think it's easy to follow. I think it's an exciting start and it promises so much for the audience. But, you know, for a story that's continuing another story, I don't think you feel a lot of you know, the, like dangling sort of stories and, and history that you need to know. The Walking Dead is a, is a show that moves forward. And I think especially this year, it's very easy for people to jump on and move forward with it. Well, the first episode, the first half of the of the premiere is I, I would almost say it's funny in places like there's actually almost a three men and a little baby storyline to uh, to part of it, which I thought was amusing, <laughs> yeah. uh, was was making things at least have the range to be lighter emotionally. Was that a mandate that you wanted to make sure you got in this season? Yeah, I, it's something I want in every show that we make, though. I will say as we push on, there's going to be some super darker shows and there might be some super lighter shows. Uh, that aren't quite as balanced as our three shows. You know, we're going to start experimenting with different lengths of series, and that might allow things to be a little focused up in, in different directions. But with The Walking Dead, whether you're starting at the comic, whether you're doing any of the seasons that any of the showrunners did on those, that show, it's just, it's baked in. It's part of it. And, and Eugene especially is, I think, you know, Josh is a remarkable actor, but he's unbelievably funny. And I think it, w it just was the perfect storm of his relationship with Rosita, her baby, where they are in this sort of settled sort of state of, of Alexandria. It was hilarious. And that it's just a, if you don't have the light parts, the dark parts don't play as much. You want the darkness to be that much darker. You want the lighter to be that much lighter. And uh, I'm thrilled with how funny that uh, episode was. And there are even a few lines from, from Robert in there. From the comic, it was uh, Rick and Michonne rather than Daryl and Carol. But then Angela turned it up to 11, and Norman and Melissa are actually two of the funnier people on the planet. So you don't leave that comedy money on the comedy table. <laughs> You know, knowing that you have this this big world of The Walking Dead and obviously expansion into these big budget movies, the third show in the works, 
probably, you know, on the home stretch of the flagship. Fear is in its fifth season. How much more expansion do you want to do? I mean, how many more scripted shows would you like to see? I mean, especially knowing that how the comic book ends, you can see conceivably do as a pilot. Well, I, I think, and, and I know you guys see it, it's such like an understatement, but television is changing. And that's exciting because we can tell stories in other formats than 16 episode seasons. I think we will continue to do that and we have plans for that, but we also have plans for for shorter length series, for mini series, for things that are like specials. And it's taking advantage of not only the different stories we can tell, but the different formats we can tell them in. To me, that's very exciting because the form dictates the content. It dictates the expectation of the audience. And I really do want to achieve more variety in the things we put out. Really, the movie is a good example of that. That's going to be a very different thing based on its form. But I want to get into more of that because I, I think that is the future of television, that there isn't just one way to do it. Because this is such a big world with such different stories, you know, it'd be silly not to do that. And, and that also means, you know, not everything we put out is going to be connected to any of the existing shows. And further, some of it might not even mean to go beyond a certain length. We do want to do these smaller things that are completely their own thing and then do something else. And some stuff could be three episodes, some stuff could be six episodes, some stuff could be... 12 or 16. Yeah, like the, um, like the webisodes some, you've done have so, been really, in, you know, a good example, I think, of, of where the, those growth areas could be. And that kind of thing is, I, I think there's now an appetite from the audience for that kind of stuff on a bigger scale. And the kind of variety that we can do it in, it's just, I, I really do feel like a kid in a candy store. I work very hard with the showrunners. And, you know, each one of them have ideas beyond the thing that they're working on that have no relation to what they're working on. And it's just the kind of sandbox that we're in. It's such a pleasure to do all sorts of different things in it. We will. We just, we just will because the audience wants that now. Yeah. And, you know, television, you know, has increasingly become about building such franchises is what you've done with Walking Dead. Obviously, CBS is doing multiple Star Trek shows and Dick Wolf has, you know, procedural fr franchises now at two broadcast networks and Fox is turning 911 into into a franchise. Uh, why do you think that the TV do not do not forget the ish universe? Of course not. We just we just had uh, Karen Gist, the showrunner for Mixed Ish on for one of these segments. But you know, in, in this larger sense, why do you think the TV industry is almost, you know, at this point following the feature division in, in these in building out these larger multiple show franchises? I mean, what the Fast and the Furious is now had I've lost track of how many movies and now there's a spinoff, obviously Star Wars, all the Marvels. Why is TV now following in that model? I think it's just uh, and, you know, they're just me. But and even as a consumer, I'll just say because we want that stuff and we're consuming things just very differently. It's everybody, you know, essentially has their own video store now. You know, you got the Marvel video store and you have the Star Wars video store and all of these places where you can 
go in and you have an idea of, you know, the type of thing you would get. Hopefully there's a lot of variety. And I don't know, it gives people a, a sort of a deep library to go into. And they might not go into it immediately. It's something that they can return to. It's something, you know, that they essentially own now through the streaming services. It's nice to, be, to have all those books on the shelf, all those videos on the shelf, and be able to pull them down what you, when you want. And I, I think that's sort of what we're building. It is, of course, we would love people to watch things on Sunday night. That would be the best. But it's, it's a different world now. And, you know, we're even going to be building things that aren't even designed for you guys to watch on Sunday night. We just want to give you a stack of entertainment to have for the rest of your life <laughs> and to dip into, to dip out to. Uh, that's how I look at it. Well, what is in your mind the kind of flexibility in terms of genre variation within this universe? Is there a Walking Dead universe uh, comedy that you can imagine doing, perhaps? A half hour Walking Dead sitcom? Challenge accepted. <laughs> Um, Best possible answers. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I will say that absolutely a lighter thing, absolutely comedic things. And there's a few things that we're working on now that I am very excited about that, you know, there are characters in this universe who are, you know, used to this world that, you know, can have a lighter take. You can have your Black Panther and your Guardians of the Galaxy. And really, I mean, we've talked about full comedic stuff, like even more than lighter. Never anything that would be like goofy with the, the walkers. You just can't violate that. Where, you know, no singing and dancing dead people. No musical episodes. But, Got it. Yeah, but, but I mean, just what we were talking about with like, if you are to fix the camera on Eugene for 42 minutes, it's gonna be much, much lighter than if you fix the camera on Alpha. And then it's just turning the dials on those things from a content perspective. Yeah, I mean, like the, the Eugene origin story, you know, the Eugene prequel where, you know, his, his struggles as a, a stand-up comedian or something, you know what I mean? Like, that's hilarious. But, you and, know, I mean, it's, maybe it's an, not, an origin story about Merle you know, and, and about the Dixon brothers before, you know, the, before the onset of the apocalypse, who know, you know, like there's, there's so much, so much IP and so much, so many stories that haven't been told in any form, whether it's in Kirkman's comic or some of the novels that they've put out as part of that franchise. There, it's just, it's so ripe for everything. So it feels like, you know, like you could do anything. And I'm, I'm working also very hard to bring in new voices. I love the way we tell stories on these shows, but I'm looking to have stories that are very, just very, very different approaches that, that don't come from our minds, that we collaborate with them, that we keep them in, you know, the right lanes, but that have, that are, you know, very, very different from, from what we've done with, with original voices, diverse voices that can bring new things to the world. Well, from your perspective, as this universe kind of expands in a scripted form, what is sort of the value of 
talking dead to the overall universe and franchise. Is that something that's actually important to your conception of the whole thing? Or is it just something that AMC uses to to drag audiences around for an extra half hour? And you guys can promote all, all the merchandising that you give away as part of that show, too. It's a weird thing, though, because, you know, I, I wasn't in on those conversations originally. So, I, I you know, I started in season two and it got started after that. But, you know, I, I was I was a writer producer. I wasn't in on those conversations. And and I looked at it with a little bit of skepticism, even like I just didn't quite get it and then I saw what it was and I thought it was kind of genius because it was where the culture was going it's what we're doing right now it's if Talking Dead didn't exist Talking Dead would exist in some other way off of AMC because it's just it's about people wanting to connect people wanting to talk about stuff people wanting to hear people talk about stuff which is what we're doing right now the culture has really moved in that direction, and they got a little ahead of it. I think it fits in because even with The Talking Dead, there's a lot of things out there that are like The Talking Dead. Yeah, oh, it inspired People a wave like, of, impo- of imposters and knockoffs, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say that. It's, it's just, I mean, it's just fans enjoying the show and talking about it with each other. Oh, oh, you're talking about, like, other shows that have done it. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, t- I'm literally talking about with The Walking Dead. Like even with the walk, even with Talking Dead, there's things like Talking Dead, talking about the Walking Dead. Wow, yeah. what a sentence! I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, we're we're in the obviously we're doing a podcast about the Walking Dead. I mean, and Talking Dead is basically that with an audience and it's broadcast. But you know, um, you know. Well, but wait, what I just say with the merchandising on it, that is another part of it that is, again, it seems what people want, and you know. When they hold up certain things, they get me. I remember when they held up, like, the shitting pants, <laughs> you know, merchandise that I didn't know about. And it really does get me being at the head of this franchise and seeing stuff like that. You know, I don't look at every single, like, product going through and being like, hey, I want one of those. That's crazy. But I don't know if it's I, – I would never – just plainly market as anything is like just marketing or promo. There is something of love to it as far as people do love the show and like in some ways to have it in their lives in different ways. And if you look at my office, you can see all the Star Wars stuff that I've gotten. You can see all the Batman stuff that I have. And, you know, to Maria Kondo this, it, it <laughs> brings me joy. Yeah. You know, wrapping up, you know, you mentioned Batman and Star Wars. You know, we we love asking showrunners and in your case, you know, someone who's elevated beyond that position now, given all that's on your plate and given the wide variety of choices that exist in this landscape, what are you watching? Well, yeah, that is that is the bummer of of the gig, which anybody who like makes TV doesn't get to watch as much TV but it's likely that watching TV is what got you there, which is exactly what, what happened. And I guess that's been the saving grace of streaming. I've been at this so long that TiVo was in full effect, but you know it was never as easy as it is now to catch up on things. As far as like shows that I get to watch now, it's very few. We're in a very, very busy time right now 
with the new show, with the movie, with the existing shows. And if it's not hanging out with my family, it's work. I will say, just the way it all played out, and this is Christian Serratos' fault, for whatever reason, the one show that I get to sneak in with my wife, you know, for an hour before I get back to it, is Survivor, <laughs> which isn't even a scripted show. And in fact, we're watching like old seasons. Like we sneak, you know, I, I am now a proud subscriber to the CBS app. And it's all Christian Serratos, because she was like, you gotta watch this show. And I watched it back in the day. Jeff Probst was a cast member on the, on the cartoon I did for Disney, but it slipped away. So right now, for whatever reason, Survivor is at the top of the charts in my household. Yeah. Well, um, you're going to have to work and, on a crossover there, Scott. You know what, Leslie? Yeah? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this. I'll take a co-EP credit because on that if that's already in the works. Well, no. I mean, hey, Christian is such a maniac for the show that sometimes I think, well, wait a minute. What if we went to CBS with uh, former cast members and they did a season of just Walking Dead, former and maybe even current cast members? I don't know. but My money's um, on cudlets. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> well, our guest has been Walking Dead Chief Content Officer Scott Gimple. The Walking Dead airs Sundays on AMC. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, thank Scott. you. This was great. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with The Critics' Corner. This week's new arrivals include El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie on Netflix, season two of the streamer's critical punching bag, Insatiable, the series finale of Ballers on HBO, and the season finale of THR Newsroom favorite, Succession. Dan, you've already given our fine listeners a primer on what to watch before El Camino now. What did you really think? I should say, first of all, that we continue to have an open invitation out to Senator Elizabeth Warren for any <laughs> time that she wishes to come discuss the end of Ballers with us. I have been keeping up with the final season and would be more than happy to discuss it with the senator. Elizabeth Warren, if you're listening, big fan, come on the podcast. Anyway, back to El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie. I think that I probably fairly well teased my message or whatever in the primer, I think that it's, and this is if you don't want to have any knowledge at all going in, stop listening. That's fine. I won't be hurt. I'm not going to spoil anything big. I think that the bottom line of my review, which is available on Hollywood Reporter either right now or within minutes, is I think it is a well-made two-hour movie, or alternatively, I like to think of it as two episodes of a TV show put together. But is it necessary? No. And I, I don't at any point during it feel like you get any sense of the narrative imperative. Like if you go back and watch the second half of the last season of Breaking Bad, every single episode is like a freight train of tension because it is heading towards the conclusion. It is ultra tense basically every second. It's breathless. This is a high-quality piece of action suspense filmmaking, but narratively speaking, it's just not necessary. It doesn't answer a question that I ever particularly had, and it doesn't in any way leave me feeling, okay, well, I'm glad that we experienced this story. What it does is it makes me say, okay, I like watching Aaron Paul play this character I like some of the cameos. I'm not spoiling anything. You knew there were going to be cameos. And I think that Vince Gilligan has proven himself 
since the Breaking Bad pilot, but also every time he's gone behind the camera on Better Call Saul or on Breaking Bad, he is a really good director. He has a wonderful sense of physical space, and it is basically done by the Breaking Bad slash Better Call Saul technical team. So all of that is very, very well done. Just the question of, was this a story I needed to see? Was it a story that needed to be told? I am not sure the answer to that question is yes. I was not colossally disappointed. It does not in any way ruin the series. For me, however, I I was constantly going, okay, this is fun and all, but did I need this? And I don't know that the answer is yes, but totally entertaining and does no real harm to the series, which is really important. <laughs> Oh, that's good to hear. I'm sure a lot of people will be very relieved that it doesn't do any big damage to the show's legacy, which I think was my biggest question going in. And I think some people also probably with properly, it's always about realigning expectations. I think that if you go in with your expectations slightly tempered, you probably really will enjoy it. It it, it moves along very well. Aaron Paul is great. There are very good cameos that are a lot of fun. And there are a lot of scenes that are simply great scenes on their own because Again, Vince Gilligan's a really good director and a really good writer. And if he wants to have this two-hour lark on Netflix's dime, I'm all for it. I just don't know that I needed it. And if I needed a continuation of the story, Better Call Saul is a great continuation of the world, far better than anyone had any reason to expect. But I am totally here for... Another Breaking Bad movie, uh, it should probably be Cinnabon, a Breaking Bad movie focusing on the <laughs> Gene from Omaha character from the black and white intros to the Better Call Saul seasons. So basically the what happened to Jimmy McGill Saul after the events of Breaking Bad, that is a two hour movie I would watch. Hopefully it could be done in black and white. That's a story I'm here for. Jesse Pinkman's story. It was fun enough for two hours. Yeah. Well, any closing thoughts on Succession as we wrap up the season? Uh, it has been a great season of TV. Oh, my God. So good. It, it has been just superior. The first season I also thought was great. It was, I think, my number three show in my top ten for last year. I would expect this to move up either one or two places. Wow. Uh, because it remains simply one of the best shows on TV. It is one of the funniest shows on TV. It is one of the most knife-twisty-in-your-gut shows on TV. And the cast is so wonderful top to bottom. And I really hope that come Emmys next year, a lot of the actors who were neglected entirely this year find a way to make it into fields because Game of Thrones no longer exists. Yeah, looking forward to Sunday's finale. What have you thought of this season? Put on your critic's hat for a couple seconds. L to the OG. That's all I'm going to say. It's great. I love it. It is. I look forward to it every Sunday night. Um, I, I think I actually watched the episode after a Dodger game, and I was just like, I thought the episode was more entertaining than Dodger baseball, which says a lot if you know me or if you listen to this podcast or have listened to this episode for that matter. Every person on that show is great. Every character is so great. You never know what's going to happen next. And when you think you do, they subvert your expectations. And it's just the acting is terrific. The music is really good. Just the, you know, the the succession, you know, Twitter feeds are, are hilarious and amazing. And if anyone knows where I can get an L to the OG baseball jersey for Halloween, please let me know because I am here for that. I mean, the thing is. 
HBO is just so generally reticent to find ways to make money off of its various properties. So I can't imagine them wanting to do something like that, even though I'm sure there might be a, you know, an audience out there that'd be happy. So, you know, who am I to suggest casually to HBO and Warner Brothers that they might make a ton of money by putting up uh, an L to the OG baseball shirt? on the website for purchase and if not hey tca is around the corner that would make an excellent addition to the tca swag that they distribute every year and nbc and executive session would also make a great addition and i mean just the whole a whole tour of just executive sessions my head would pop off in a good way in in the best way because that's to me you know look i love hearing from showrunners and casts you know there's a certain amount of canned talking points that it takes place at tca where a lot of that stuff isn't particularly useful but what is useful is having an exec who comes to the stage and discusses a narrative or shares a narrative that they're working on and because that's stuff that we talk about on this podcast until they give us a reason to talk about a different narrative you know and like we said you know tbs tnt if you're listening What's your narrative? Come join us. Let's figure out what that is. The phone lines, as we say, are are open. open. Well, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us on all of your various podcast platforms. Rate us. We like that. If you really like us, write a review. I'm sure that's helpful. Come say hi to us on Twitter. We're both there and always happy to hear either the highs or lows of any week's episode. We love our listeners. And as we asked this week and will continue to ask, we also like answering your questions. So if you have any questions for future mailbag segments, you know, particularly evergreen questions. We always like having things that we can catch up with at any particular moment, but timely questions as well. You can email us at TV's top five. That's the number five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. 123 days until spring training, Dan. Until next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.